Darlene, we need to chat about this episode's sponsor. Yes. Now, we've decided that me reading ad copy um, is an area for improvement, I guess. Uh, okay. <laughs> so how about instead I talk about what I've actually accomplished using HealthSim? So they have this award-winning set of payment tools like invoicing, virtual terminals, in-person payments. But the feature that I really like is their payment page. And I was able to work with their really excellent customer support team to build the exact type of credit and debit card payment solution that we really needed for some of our clients. So it makes it very easy for clients to pay and a nice user experience as well. And like I always say, paying people for stuff should not be hard. That is right. Your message has been heard. Awesome. So if you want to make <laughs> payments easy for your clients and affordable for you, check out Helsum today. To get your first $6,000 worth of processing free, visit helsum.com slash lawyerlife. That's H-E-L-C-I-M dot com slash lawyerlife. <laughs> Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where we seek to navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. In this season six, we focus on resetting our lawyer brains. On today's episode, we discuss untangling fear in lawyering. We ask whether lawyers need to stop focusing on fear and start building up our confidence. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Oh, Darlene. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. What's going on? Summer. What's going on? I think we, it's been a while since we connected to podcasts. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm not rusty, but I'm excited to talk to you. And I'm really interested in this topic. And I think our listeners will find it very useful in their law practice. And no better, no better guest than Heidi Brown to cover that with. So we're, we're so excited to benefit from her vast knowledge and experience, uh, including mm-hmm. knowledge and experience that led to a great book that we'll, um, we'll chat about in the episode. But before we get there, what's going on in your life? Where are you? What are you thinking about? Where am I? Yeah. I'm looking out at the mountains. I, am, I have a mountain view right now. I'm out west and I have left the big city of Toronto and I've been changing my scenery, which I will talk about later in the episode, but it's great. How about you? Are you at home in your attic office or? No, I no. am actually uh, <laughs> at my uh, aunt's cottage. I'm looking at the beautiful Lake Huron as we speak right now. Wonderful summer week. We're up with the family. Uh, it's my mom's birthday. It's my wedding anniversary. Um, we, uh, we had 24 hours, uh, my wife and I, uh, away from the kids, the grandparents took them when we just got back from that. So yeah, I'm feel I like I'm relaxed. I'm energized. My good, I'll talk about, uh, that, um, that was a big part of that. I'll give a teaser. It involved an afternoon of full on relaxing. It was fantastic. Um, so, uh, yeah, I feel great. It's a, it's a nice thing to enjoy, the summer that we get uh, here in Canada, which I feel like because it's limited, it, it makes it even more imperative to get out there and, and focus on uh, some non-work stuff, which is great. Agreed. So it's sort of the Lawyer Life Pod vacation episode, and we are taking a break. I'm, I'm technically not on vacation, but um, we are making time for this interview just to make sure that we get it out. Because a lot of people are starting law school in September or going back to law school or thinking about where am I going next in my career? So the timing is good by the time we get this episode out, just to give people a new way to think about some of the things that we, we take as a given in law school. So with that, I will, I will put it over to you to introduce Heidi. 
Yeah, so Professor Heidi K. Brown is a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law, a law professor at Brooklyn Law School, and a former litigator in the construction industry. She served as of counsel with Warren Lee LLP, a boutique law firm, where she handled litigation and arbitration of complex construction contract and building development disputes. Previously, she was an associate at the Manhattan firm of Thatcher, Profit, and Wood, and at the Washington, D.C. area firm of Watt, Titer, Hoffer, and Fitzgerald LLP. Professor Brown is the author of Untangling Fear in Lawyering, a four-step journey toward powerful advocacy, The Introverted Lawyer, a seven-step journey toward authentically empowered advocacy, and the two-volume legal writing book series entitled The Mindful Legal Writer. Professor Brown champions the importance of openly discussing stressors, anxieties, and fears in lawyering and helping quiet and anxious law students and lawyers become profoundly effective advocates in their authentic voices. Professor Brown is working on her third well-being book entitled A Flourishing Lawyer, A Multidimensional Approach to Performance and Well-Being that's forthcoming in 2022. She is finishing up her master's degree in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. In her spare time, she takes boxing lessons, loves traveling internationally, and has been to a ridiculous number of U2 concerts. Maybe just set the record for the best bio that we've ever uh, read on this podcast. Here is Heidi Brown. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to both of you. Yeah, well, it's, uh, there's a lot of overlap between what you're interested in talking about and what Mike and I really try to stress and explore on this podcast. So very happy to have you. And we did have to work around your international travel schedule as well. So lots of travelers on this podcast. So let's jump in because the one thing I would say about this book that you've written on fear is that it's there's a lot in here. So take this podcast as an introduction and what I'm going to try to do with my questions and Mike will have his own uh, agenda with his questions, but we want to really explore with you just an overview of what you're saying in this book because what you're saying is very important and it's, there's a lot to it. So you practice law obviously from your bio at a, at a number of different places and you've seen it from the educational side as well. So your, your perspective is interesting as a result. What was, when you were practicing, what was your experience of fear? What made you think so much about this topic? I grappled with fear throughout my entire practice. I, I practiced for 15 years full time and I overlapped a little bit when I started teaching. I was still practicing in the first few years I was teaching law. And from the time I was in law school to the time I was a junior associate, kind of moving up the ranks, fear was really a daily presence in my life. I worked in a really rough and tumble industry. I represented construction contractors and owners and architects and engineers. So our our cases were very high dollar value, high stakes, lots of angry people fighting about money. And I was Mm -hmm. this quiet, studious, attorney. I loved the research and writing aspects of my job, but the performance aspects of my job, of which there were many, we took tons of depositions, we went to court, we negotiated, and everything was full of conflict. And I sort of internalized all that and and felt this tremendous pressure to fake a personality or persona that I just didn't have. And at the time, I thought that my my authentic persona wasn't good enough. And, and that instilled a lot of fear in me. I honestly grappled with fear for definitely the first 15 years of my lawyering life. And it was really when I transitioned to teaching and saw similar fears in my students that I began studying this really deeply so I could understand myself, but also so I could start to help my students. 
what kind of fear was that that you were feeling? Was it a fear that, you know, people people speak about the quote unquote imposter syndrome? Was it that you didn't think that you could be successful in this space? Uh, was it a fear that people wouldn't take you seriously? Like what what were you feeling at that point? It was really all the above. It was fear of making a mistake, fear of not knowing the answer and looking incompetent when our clients are paying us money to figure out these answers, fear of of not being good enough. And for me, the fear really manifested physically, which I, I didn't realize at the time. I, I just felt like, oh, I'm anxious or, oh, I'm afraid. But when I would go to do these performance oriented scenarios like taking a deposition, my fear manifested very visually. I have a very robust blushing response. And so I'd be sitting there with my binders of deposition questions and my, my boxes of exhibits incredibly intellectually and substantively prepared. But the fear would take over my, my physical body, which would then have ripple effects into my ability to think clearly and articulate all the stuff I had prepared. So it's just this ongoing process of, of feeling fear, pretending I wasn't afraid, even though it was completely obvious I was, and trying to push through it, following all this advice that I was hearing from well-meaning people, but that just did not work for me. And what was that advice? What were they saying to sort of, you'll eventually get over it or? Yes, a lot of, so I, I really heard over these decades that I, I internalized all this, I really heard two different sets of messages, neither of which were very helpful to me. We, we get these messages like, just face your fears, you know, just, just do something every day that scares you, fake it till you make it, or, you know, the great Nike slogan, just do it. Like you could just put on a pair of Nikes and bungee jump into a Socratic dialogue with, with bliss. <laughs> and so that was one side of the messaging. Just, just do it. You know, this is what you signed up for. And then the flip side of that, I also heard messages like, fear's good for you. It's a good motivator. And, and in fact, I heard as a junior attorney, and I've also heard law professors say this, say this to law students, if fear's good for you, in fact, if you're not afraid, it means you should leave practice. And so I thought, wow, you know, there are two alternatives, be scared all the time or, or quit. And I just don't believe those are the messages that we should be perpetuating, or at least for some people, they just did not work for me at all. I had to really finally get to know my fear. I love the word untangle, which became part of the title of my book. Untangling fear is when we really get to sit with it, take it apart, disassemble it, study it, and then choose the aspects of it that might be good and motivational, but then set aside the rest because it's debilitating. My fear was truly debilitating. Well, and you made that point in your book where you said that someone had told you that if you didn't care, if you didn't, if you weren't afraid, you didn't care enough, something, I'm not getting it exactly right, but I had felt that early in my career that the fear was sort of a function of really wanting to do a good job and that you know, I did have a sense that I should figure out how to not be afraid. I think that you're right, that that was the prevailing wisdom, you know, throw yourself in and go outside your comfort zone. And to some extent, that that can work. It, I mean, it worked for me a little bit. I'd be interested in Mike's experience on that. But, um, well, Mike, why don't we ask you that right now? <laughs> did you did you relate to that idea of just just do it? I, I think that where I was, especially early in my career, there was no other option. Um, 
And yeah. that had a lot of negative effects on me. I think my health, uh, my mental well-being, probably just how I was organizing my days. Um, there was a benefit in that I wound up learning and touching on so many different areas of law and really getting my hands dirty, so to speak, in each one that um, I wound up being over time becoming more comfortable in a bunch of different areas. So there, there was like, you know, it led to a good effect, but I think, and, and then what I love about what Heidi focuses on is that it would have been possible for me to get there without a bunch of the negative stuff that I did have to carry on my back, you know, on that trip, so to speak. Right. That's right. Well, reading your book, Heidi, I really remembered back to law school too. And I think we should talk about the the educational process that instills that fear. Because I remember the back row. We had in my class, we had the back row of very smart, uh, I think older. Um, they'll any one of them would uh, maybe take issue with me calling them that. But there was sort of a group of very confident um, men and women at the back of the room that were very comfortable with the Socratic type of method and very confident and didn't seem to experience some of the anxieties that others in the class experienced. And I do remember, and I I wouldn't have put it this way before reading your book, but I do kind of remember thinking that they were, that was the right way to be a lawyer. And I think that where the industry has, or where the profession has evolved since then is that we're starting to understand that there's a whole variety of skill sets that go into a great lawyer. We're trying to get away from this idea that people have no emotions, they have no feelings, they are just robot lawyers, which Mike and I did a, a previous episode on. So what is it in your book, um, or maybe you could share with the listeners the things that you outline in your book that are the performative elements of law school, the fear-inducing bits that are just baked into it? I thought that was really instructive. Yes, I've been thinking a lot about this new generation of first-year law students who are about to step into their first Socratic classroom in the next couple weeks. And for me, reflecting back on law school, there were so many performative moments where it seemed like we were just expected to know how to do them from day one instead of someone modeling how to do a Socratic dialogue or how to volunteer in class or what to do when you're cold-called and you've done the work, but you don't know what the right answer is. So I would say things that law students are gonna grapple with in the next couple weeks, first couple months of school, are that classroom dynamic, feeling like there's that back row or front row of, of people who maybe have lawyers in their families or have always been ready and raring to go and argue, whereas some students, like, like I was, aren't very sure of their voice yet, They're doing the work, they're doing the reading every night, but they're not quite sure what language is being spoken in the classroom. So I think grappling with what's going on in the classroom, how to show the professor you have done the reading, but it is a new language. And and unless we as teachers take the time to explain that to new law students, it can be very fear-inducing. Of course, there's also a lot of performance aspects of simulations. Students will learn how to do their first oral argument or take their first, do their first negotiation in, in simulation classes. In, in legal writing classes, which is what I teach, we, we do a lot of performative activities like pretending that you're giving a, a presentation to a law firm partner to report back on research that you've done. 
or presenting an argument, um, two different sides of an argument in class. So there's, in the, at least in the first year of law school, in the American system at least, there's a lot of expectation that you're, you're ready to go and you can argue at a moment's notice. Whereas for some students, a lot of students, I believe, we need time to, to ease into our lawyer voice, sort of get some traction in our authentic lawyer voice and trying to pretend like we know all the answers, which we clearly don't, and that's okay, we're learning, and also trying to fake this confidence, which, which we're not confident all the time, and that's also okay in the classroom. And it feels like in that, especially the first year of law school, and I would argue it, the same thing happens at a number of checkpoints along in the profession, is that it's like a sink or swim opportunity that's given to you, right? Mm-hmm. Without, <laughs> without the swimming lessons. It's just like, okay, so we're just going to give you this thing and not tell you, you know, here's, as you're saying, like, here are the things you should hit in your argument, or here's how you can break down a case. And, and if you've read it and you can, you know, click a check mark on this checklist, then you're ready to answer it in class. You know, th- there's just the structures aren't necessarily provided to people. And the thing is that that I always get bothered by by that is it obviously like has an effect on the individual, but there's also just such like a waste element there. Like it seems just um, kind of absurd to put people through that and also get worse results if the goal is to make people, you know, the best they can be. The same can be said in the way some, you know, juniors or here in Canada, some articling students are treated by their supervising lawyers or their senior lawyers. It's like, you know, put, put you on a wild goose chase and, as a quote-unquote learning opportunity instead of just, you know, really doing some targeted mentoring. So what is, what's your view on that? What does the profession miss? Uh, or am I just like coming up with a random theory that doesn't really land? No, I agree with you 100%. I, th- I think there's two things going on there. First, I think some law professors and supervising attorneys forget what it's like to be new. I think they, you know, they're busy and and I know law professors now are gearing up for the new semester and, and many of them don't have ill intentions, but they simply forget what it's like to be a young student coming into law school with a lot of them not having any background in the law. So I think there's a little bit of just a disconnect between professors and supervising attorneys putting themselves in the shoes of new lawyers. But then there's this completely other dynamic going on where, which is very alive and well, which people think that, oh, well, well, we went through this rite of passage. This is tradition. You know, the, the scary Socratic method or the sink or swim dynamic is the way we learned. We did fine. So that must be right for this new generation of lawyers. I come at it a completely different way, completely different perspective. I think we should be explaining things very transparently, explaining why we're teaching a certain way, why we're training a certain way, modeling how to, like I said, stay in a dialogue if you don't know the answer, but showing that you've done the work. That is a huge learning moment. And what I've observed is that some teachers and some supervisors will just move on to the next person or get frustrated without taking a second to keep that person, that new individual in our profession in the moment so they understand they can ride out the rise and fall of the, of the stressful feelings, but, but they did it. They stayed in the moment. Yeah, it didn't go perfectly. That's also okay. And, and we're training them to to it's okay to make mistakes when you're learning 
and then you get better and better each time and you build that confidence. It's like, I, it frustrates me so often when we're, we basically say, just be confident. I, I heard that so often, even from my very caring and well-meaning parents, just be confident. <laughs> like it's so easy. We have to build confidence. And, and that comes from a, creating a trusting environment as from teacher to student or supervisor to trainee. As a person who runs a team of lawyers that are all working on different clients and we're trying to build a reputation for giving great service and doing great work, I absolutely do not want any lawyers who think faking it till they make it is a good idea. You know, like that's not even a, a desirable end as a student. I would far rather have the student who's well prepared and says, I don't really know how to convey my answers to the client. Can you help me? Way more. You know, and I don't, I don't know if that's being taught. I agree with you a thousand percent. And, and what you just touched on is the difference to me between faking this intellectual bravado versus having intellectual humility and, and being able to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know how to research and I'm going to go find the answer and I'll report back to you. I, I think that we should be training students how to how to say that out loud <laughs> and attorneys how to say that out loud because it you're we're doing a disservice to our clients if we pretend like we know the answer if we absolutely don't i mean that's dangerous so we want to be cultivating intellectual humility of course we want to show that we are intellectual human beings and we're substantively prepared but to to have intellectual humility will take us so much farther and then layering, layering with that the emotional intelligence, being self-aware about our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior, and how that can help drive our, our intellectual performance instead of just ignoring all those components or dimensions of ourselves and, and defaulting to acting like we're the smartest person in the room, which does not work. <laughs> I, it's funny, like that took me a while to learn the, you know, let's say we're in a contract negotiation, you know, early days when I was, you know, the lawyer on the other side, if they were just, you know, so confident and headstrong and boisterous and blah, 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 I would think, oh, okay, so they're so confident that, you know, may, maybe you have to think about this again or whatever. But sooner later, I realized that number one, oftentimes the person who is the loudest and most seemingly confident that's just like, you know, puffery needed to avoid the actual hard conversation about the substance, right? And then instead of negotiating hard on a point like that, what I've, you know, what I learned is being like, oh, you know, I was just confused a little bit by this issue. Can you explain it to me? And when you put somebody in that position of having to really walk through their entire thought process, um, that's when you really understand if they have understanding or not. So it, avoiding that, like, you know, smoke screen and actually just having the know-how and confidence and presence, you know, as you spoke about earlier, not being overtaken by the fear, having that presence to just continue a thoughtful conversation. It, I, it took me a while to learn that that's actually a really powerful approach. And it's a shame that, you know, so often when you leave law school, you feel like the, the bravado and the puffery is actually, you know, a required element um, to be good. I agree. I, 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 in my experience practicing, it was the quiet, thoughtful lawyers who usually had the most impact, whether that was in the courtroom or in a negotiation, everyone else is pounding their fists. And that would be the quiet, thoughtful, methodical lawyer who would suddenly come up with the solution to the problem that everybody else had sort of blown by. And 
I, I think when, when we're, for me, I was intimidated by the, the blustery lawyers and I did second guess myself all the time. And so what I had to do was start using my writing. I, when I finally started appreciating, first of all, that I was an introverted lawyer and the assets that quiet, methodical people bring to our profession, I started using those as a strength in those moments to do exactly what you just mentioned, sort of cut through the bluster and get to the point and ask questions that would prompt the other person to have to explain themselves. And maybe they don't even understand truly what they're arguing about, but when you can calm everybody down and, and again, to use the verb untangle, untangle where the differences lie or where, where things can come together for two people on opposite sides of the table, it's really remarkable what we can accomplish if we set aside that, that bravado, that fake bravado and, and bluster. As we start recognizing the value of diversity, some of this stuff becomes more obvious. You know, the introverted lawyer, what you just said, makes perfect sense to me that you don't want everyone to be the alpha confident lawyer in, on a file. It takes all kinds of different skill sets to make a, a successful file. So the other thing I was going to transition to, just because I thought it was a really interesting part of your book, was the, the way you lay out how other professions deal with mistake-making, fear. And you, you make the case that it's, it's possible to train professionals to have a skill set around this stuff. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, the medical profession really intrigued me in terms of how medical schools and, and training hospitals were addressing the concepts of fear and mistake making. Because what I learned is they have a, they are perceived to have a hierarchical situation when you're in a learning environment in medicine as well, which I, I, I don't have any contacts in the medical field, so I haven't gone through that type of schooling. But when I was researching it, there's a similar hierarchy, and there's also similar teaching styles of sort of an intimidation, Socratic questioning, hide the ball, some of the stuff we've talked about in terms of legal education. And what I realized in exploring what some medical schools are doing is they are talking about this stuff out loud and they're setting up classroom dynamics where they're taking apart situations that could instill fear in a medical student or a, a junior doctor where they're noticing potential mistakes about to happen, but they're afraid to report them to someone in a more senior position. So these medical schools are putting students in those scenarios to talk through what do you do in that situation? What's the right thing to do? How do you amplify your voice authentically so you're, you, you realize something bad could happen in a medical scenario and you feel that fear of raising it to the attention of someone and then how do you work through that so you actually follow through? And I just think that's remarkable and, and so similar to what we should and could be doing in law school, talking about very real ethical scenarios or tactical strategic situations, difficult personality conflicts, even bullying perhaps in a deposition or in a negotiation. And how do we teach the next generation of lawyers to not just put your head down and do your work, but notice what's going on be able to say it out loud and be able to step up and, and solve a problem or do the right thing in a very difficult, challenging moment. So I was impressed by what medical schools are doing in that regard. Also in some business schools and entrepreneurship and engineering schools, there's the, the concept of, of 
fail fast, I believe is the, the slogan that they use, that they want to encourage mistake making early. So you get used to realizing that the world is not going to come to a, a screeching halt if, if you make an error. That's part of the learning process. And they're trying to instill integrity with mistake making too. Like if you make a mistake, admit you made a mistake and then remedy the mistake. Don't just, don't try to cover it up, but also how you learn from mistakes and how you can be more creative and innovative by having that early experience with making mistakes. I feel like we should be doing more of that in law school too, not just forcing everyone to have the right answer off the t on the tip of their tongue, but, but really fleshing out why certain things that we're doing in law school we can do better but not really judging students so harshly when they falter in the early stages of their learning about the law. Well, and especially important when you consider that we leave law school with very few uh, real practical skills, right? At least that's true in a lot of law schools here. And from previous guests, we think it's also true in the U.S. But you've got to learn on the job. And if you're learning on the job and you didn't learn, you know, we, we learn a skill set. We learn how to think. We learn... A bunch of analytical structures but of course we're going to make mistakes and I think that you know it's so interesting to really read your book and consider just the incongru like the incongruity of saying oh by the way we didn't teach you anything but also you can't make any mistakes and you're held to the standard of a senior lawyer on day one of your profession from a negligence perspective, and, 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 and. It just seems like a real recipe for mental health challenges, which you also cover. So what are the, if you don't accept that you're fearful and you try to just power through it, what are some of the consequences of that? I lived that for nearly two decades. I, I did not get to know my fear. I pretended I wasn't afraid, whereas inside I was a churning tornado of stress and anxiety. So for me, it had really detrimental mental health manifestations and physical, physical, emotional, mental. I was a wreck. <laughs> and it, it really took transitioning and teaching and seeing my students experiencing those same feelings. I could see it in their faces. It was my, my brightest legal writers, my most thoughtful problem solvers, my, my most creative students in coming up with solutions to these complex legal conflicts the ones who were so excited about that aspect of being lawyers showed fear and anxiety and stress towards these performance moments because they didn't they didn't know what to do but they didn't know how to ask for help and i think that's that's a dangerous thing that we unfortunately perpetuate in our profession is is hiding that we're experiencing these things we need to be talking about them out loud making it okay to have these conversations and then arming and equipping our new generation of lawyers and our and our older generations of lawyers with with better tools for having dialogues about these things and helping each other. I, I get excited when I see law students noticing that their classmates are struggling in a in a class to answer a question or they're they they're not quite sure what to do in a particular simulation. I, I love when I see them helping each other because that's really the collaborative dynamic we want to see in the profession. I know that there'll be pushback on that from sort of the more traditional attorneys who are used to competition and, you know, our clients are expecting zealous advocacy. However, I think we can do both. We can be collaborative and and have really high standards and, and not reduce the rigor of our profession. We can, we can do it all. We can 
by having conversations about these things and talking about the mental and emotional and physical health detriments that can happen if we don't. I, I love it. And I think what you're doing with your books and, you know, appearing on podcasts like this is so important because, um, so many folks are in the situations where they're, you don't even realize the weight and the effect that this stuff is having on you until you're able to step away from it. It didn't have to be that way. Um, and so it, if folks who don't have the opportunity to step out at least can step into your books and, and your thoughts to see that there is a way and there truly is. It's, it's funny, just this moment of time just seems really unique where we can actually reset norms um, in certain areas to say, okay, that stuff just is waste, right? We, it doesn't have to go that way. And we can look toward people like you who are suggesting something so tangibly, um, you know, the new way to do it. And so I, I just want to say thank you. <laughs> it's, it's the absolute best. And, and then to folks who are in situations where they are feeling these effects, the terrible, you know, weight of fear, um, you know, the long hours, the expectations, the billing targets, all these sort of things that is possible to practice without that stuff. And it's just ultimately up to the profession to make more opportunities available um, that we can do good work and also still uh, enjoy our lives. So on that note, can you give us some tips uh, about how the profession, how individuals can move from fear to confidence uh, in their practice? So what helped me was first really, really being okay, sort of doing a deep dive and discovering myself. I write a lot about how Socrates said, know thyself. And until if, if we just keep barreling into these scenarios, doing the same thing over and over again, and, and expecting to somehow, you know, by the 10th, 20th, 30th deposition, we're, we're over the fear, that doesn't work. So it really helped me to take a step back understand the biology of fear, the science of fear. So there's there's accessible research tools we can do to understand what is happening to us mentally, physically, and emotionally when we feel that fear hitting us, whether it's anticipating a, a lawyering scenario or we're actually stepping into one. So let's educate ourselves first. What's the science behind fear? What's actually happen, happening to us when we experience that fight, flight, or freeze scenario? And then what really helped me was to do two, two things, two approaches. One was mental and one was physical, because again, I had incredibly visceral physical reactions to my fear. The mental one, some of my students sometimes feel like this is a little touchy-feely, but it definitely works. And what we have to do is when you're anticipating a fear scenario or you're stepping into one, listen and transcribe the actual words that you're hearing in your mental soundtrack. And, and it's not pretty usually, but it really helped me to listen, transcribe them, literally write them down because I was hearing messages like, you're not good enough for this. You're gonna, they're gonna think you're stupid. What are you even doing here? Why are you even trying? Your face is gonna turn red. They're gonna think you're, you're weird. So I would write those things down and then try to figure out First of all, where those messages came from, maybe from well-meaning teachers, coaches, people in positions of authority in our past. But we can absolutely realize that those messages, while we've been replaying them over and over again for decades in my case, we can delete and override them. And then it's not a matter of just doing positive self-talk. For me, I had to actually write down accurate representations of my preparation and my ability. 
So now, and I still have to do this all the time. I did this today before coming on the podcast. I remind myself, you've done the work. You have something to say. You deserve to be here. You're, you have your own voice. Even if your voice shakes, it's okay. Now step into the scenario and go. So that's the first step for me, transcribing the mental messages that really undermine my power and strength, rewriting them, not in just a touchy-feely positive positive self-talk manner, but as a sort of a 30-second reboot, remind yourself you've done the work and remind yourself that you deserve to be here and then step into the scenario. Part two is the physical. It took me a long time to realize that the way my body reacted to fear and stress and anxiety, it was just going into natural biological self-protect mode. But for me, that means getting small. So my shoulders would cave in, I'd cross my arms and legs, and I, it was like my body was trying to curl up in a little ball and roll out of the room unnoticed. <laughs> but what I realized is that that was just blocking my energy and blood and oxygen flow. So I was having these visceral physical reactions. My heart was racing. I was sweating. I turned really red. So in, in exploring the physicality of fear and how each of us individually react differently, we can. It, it's really illuminating when you open your eyes to what you're physically doing. So I recommend conducting, just like we just did a mental inventory, doing a physical inventory. When you're anticipating an event or you're stepping into one, try to discern chronologically or sequentially what's happening in your body one second to the next. Like for me, I mentioned the shoulders caving in, I get small, I start sweating. And then we can sort of back that up and, and practice standing or sitting in a balanced athlete stance. I take boxing lessons. It's helped me immensely to understand that when I feel out of breath, it's just that fear kicking in again, but I'm in control and I can calm myself down, put my shoulders back instead of letting them hunch forward, stand or sit if I'm in the classroom or in a meeting or in a conference room, stand or sit in a balanced athlete stance, take a couple breaths, and then activate my mental soundtrack and step into it with strength and power. Wow. So I I think that's a really concise summary of, and Mike loves summaries. We always joke about that on this podcast. And I think it's great. And I think if, if you teach that in law schools, wow, how different. How different for people who think, oh, but I'm still afraid I should probably not be a lawyer. Like, no, you know, fear is part of life. Your book really spoke to me. I think it's great. We will include a link to it in the show notes. And hopefully others who are struggling with this issue can find it. And follow you and read the other stuff that you've written as a resource. And yeah, it's just a great direction that you're going in with this stuff. I just have to say, so not only on the point of fear, uh, which has been fantastic for you to contribute, but I feel like you have affirmed so many things about what we're trying to do with this podcast. It's like, I feel so yes. great because, <laughs> because we talk about um, the importance of systems and processes uh, quite often. We talk about flow. We talk about reducing negative talk in your head. Um, you know, we, we talk about authenticity and acknowledging, um, you know, the, that, you know, cognitive dissonance can have an effect on you. Like we've done all this stuff in the most recent season. Uh, and it seems to be consistent with where your thoughts are, which is heartening. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yes, um, agreed. it's really, it's great feedback, um, for us. And at least for me personally, because it's been a focus for me, uh, in my practice for, uh, a 
period of time now. So not only for joining us and talking about fear, but for that, um, we thank you so much. And I do know that you're going to hang out uh, and go through our goods and gripes with us. Um, so I'm looking forward to that wisdom coming through too. Uh, and we will be back after this with our goods and gripes. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support, and gripes are things that annoy us. Um, Darlene, do you want to go first? I'll go first with a good, and I will just say that a change of scenery after the COVID year of lockdowns uh, in our province was has been transformative. So I, it's a good because I think our life was so boring and not much going on uh, for the last year that even the smallest things were just so appreciated. It kind of reminded me of doing international travel in difficult circumstances and then coming back to Canada and just thinking, wow, hot water comes out of this tap. Like, that's awesome. (laughs) So I just feel like it's reset my sense of how great life can be just to take a bit of a minute and look around and you know, I really hope that things are fully opening up again. That, that is my good. How about uh, Heidi? Do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, I'll echo the theme of, of loving travel. Uh, international travel is just a huge part of my persona. I love it so much. It just sort of takes me out of my, my head when I'm in a different culture. But as we all know, it's been hard to do that this past year. I did get a chance to get away, which was great. But now that I'm back in New York, I discovered this amazing Netflix series called The Art of Crime. And it's, it's this it's in French. So that's sort of my international um, plug here. I like to watch shows that are in a different language, because if I can't travel, it sort of transports me. But the show is awesome, because it's like this, this grumpy police officer who gets put in this art crime department, and he has to pair up with this female art expert. And the two of them the they're their friendship as it develops is interesting, but also it's set in France and, and the art is amazing. So I just have been enjoying that show because it sort of transports me when I can't jump on a plane right now. That's great. Um, I'm going to check that out for sure. Thank you. Um, my good is I think like um, the th- my most favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I've only done it three times. But yesterday we went to an outdoor like Scandinavian spa where you do like the hot tub and then like the cold water dip and then you sit outside for a while you just like cycle through that like a bunch of times and I just love it I was so calmed and zen out it was like oh we spent I could have spent like a full day there my wife had to drag me out basically so we could go on with our day but oh my goodness like what a fantastic experience and and one I'm grateful to be able to have are you secretly Scandinavian I feel like you have this like Scandinavian yeah element to you i mean i see how you're there so the yeah the the thing i made called logum which is a a swedish word yeah for just the right amount there's that and the breathing guy that guy who jumps into cold i like the breathing i like yeah yeah he's scandinavian right i don't know 
I actually don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> finish we'll check, fact yeah, check I think it might be finished. I don't know. Anyway, I feel like there's a strong theme of Mike. I like what they're doing over there, I guess. Yeah, from what I yeah. from from the drips and drabs that come this way. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Anyway, I won't add IKEA to the mix because I think that annoys those who are gen anyway. Okay. <laughs> so um that's awesome. I'm glad you got to do that as a break. The best. Um do you wanna follow it up with a gripe? I don't have any because I'm just I'm less than twenty four hours out of this amazing right. experience. So I just I'm looking at everything with uh the utmost of appreciation and fresh eyes. Yeah. Okay. Heidi, do you have a grape? <laughs> I have one that's probably an unpopular opinion, but my gripe is summer. I'm so ready for winter. <laughs> oh, um, good for I'm you. constantly hot. I can't sleep. So I'm very, right. I love fall and winter in New York City. And so my gripe is just that summer is lingering. And I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I can't wait until my face is frozen and I have to wear 13 layers outside. Wow. <laughs> With the, on a call with Canadians, we're usually looking at uh, at summer as a, a big hit of the year. <laughs> I sure. get that feeling too, though. I, I welcome, like, once the nights start getting cold, I'm like, okay, all right. This is like, yeah, it's a magic time. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Um, I know I've said it probably too many times now, but um, everything you've, you've put forward is so useful and important. And I hope it becomes so broadly adopted by many folks. Um, so, uh, and your new book um, obviously will be on our must read list when it comes out. Um, wish you the best as you uh, finalize that, I guess. Thank you. Thank you both so much. This has been really fun and great. Cool. Okay. Uh, I mean, uh, until next time, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.